Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, creating water with holes in it. And investigating when hominins might have walked on two feet. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Chemists use all sorts of solvents to dissolve gases for use in reactions. But in many cases, these solvents aren't necessarily very environmentally friendly, and they can be unsuitable for medical applications. To get around this, a long-held pipe dream has been to instead transport gases in water. But just one problem, water isn't the best at carrying gas molecules. Now a team have developed porous water, containing tiny cages that can hold large numbers of gas molecules. And they think that in the future, this method could have an important medical use. Reporter Jeff Marsh spoke to one of the authors, Jared Mason, to find out more. So if a person is walking down the street and has a heart attack, the amount of oxygen in their bloodstream begins to rapidly decrease and it becomes extremely important to try to get oxygen back into the body. And the quicker that one can get oxygen back into the body, the better the outcomes are. And one of the most frustrating aspects of oxygen deprivation is that we're surrounded by a ton of oxygen. But when the typical mechanisms for getting that oxygen into the body fail, such as during a heart attack, it becomes really hard to get that oxygen effectively into the body. You can't inject oxygen gas directly into the bloodstream. And so if you could effectively deliver large amounts of oxygen rapidly into the bloodstream, this would have tremendous implications for emergency medicine and for being able to significantly improve outcomes from events like cardiac arrest. So yeah, as you say, you can't just inject pure oxygen. That's a great way to kill someone. So the ideal scenario is that you could infiltrate some sort of benign liquid that would be fine to go in the body and infuse that with enough oxygen to buy someone more time. 
Exactly. And that's something people have been interested in trying to do for the last several decades, both for acute emergency situations like cardiac arrest, but also as a way of developing artificial blood substitutes and overcoming challenges with donated human blood and blood shortages and things like that. And this is a surprisingly tricky chemistry problem, isn't it? Just because of some fundamental characteristics of water itself. Yeah, there's a very fundamental chemistry problem here. And that's how do you get a large density of oxygen or other gas molecules into water or any kind of aqueous environment? Water as a solvent really likes to interact with itself. And it doesn't like interacting with most gases like oxygen or nitrogen or carbon dioxide. And the amount of gas that can be dissolved in water is typically about an order of magnitude or so less than that which can be dissolved in other common organic solvents. And that's one of the major challenges that was overcome by evolution, which was how do you effectively deliver enough oxygen to large organisms and allow life to become larger in size. Right. Yeah, because blood is largely composed of water, but the oxygen isn't just sort of freely floating in that water, is it? It's in these cleverly packaged molecules called hemoglobin in our red blood cells. Exactly. And the sole function of red blood cells really is just to transport oxygen. 84% of our cells in our body are red blood cells, and they're just packed full of hemoglobin, as you said. Blood contains about an order of magnitude more oxygen than water. Can you talk us through what's actually happening when, let's say, a molecule of oxygen dissolves in water? Yeah, so in order for a gas to be dissolved in water, water molecules have to move slightly further apart from one another and create space to accommodate that gas molecule. And there's an energetic penalty associated with doing that because water molecules have much stronger interactions with each other. And so that's in large part why there's so few gas molecules dissolved in water compared to other liquids, which are not as strongly associated with one another. And so your team's solution to this was to create permanent cavities in water that will basically let in more gas molecules and keep water out. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so we tried to kind of overcome this penalty for creating more space for oxygen molecules in water by building that space intrinsically into the solution. And this is building off some very pioneering work from 2015, where researchers first reported in Nature the design of porous liquids that relied on having very large solvent molecules, organic solvent molecules that could not fit into empty cavities to create empty space inside a liquid. Okay, so they made molecular cages that were just physically too small to let in those big solvent molecules, and that left room then for the smaller gas molecules to dissolve. But then water itself is a very small molecule, isn't it? So that strategy isn't going to work so well with water. Exactly. You can't rely on size to prevent water molecules from getting inside a pore. If you did, then the pores would also be too small to allow gas molecules to diffuse inside, and so they wouldn't be so useful for storing large densities of gas molecules. So you have to rely on something else. Um, and so we relied on thermodynamics or the fact that water much prefers to interact with itself than it does to interact with kind of less sticky surfaces. 
And so we have networks of cages that are connected together um, to form nano-sized objects that don't like to interact with water on their inside surfaces. And these are microporous materials known as metal organic frameworks and zeolites. So their inside surfaces are very hydrophobic, kind of like oil. They repel water to some degree. But we make the outside surfaces of these particles very hydrophilic, um, that have strong interactions with water. Yeah, I suppose you, you don't want water repellent or hydrophobic molecules on the outside of these kind of cave matrix because otherwise it wouldn't form a nice suspension in the water. Exactly. If the external surfaces are also hydrophobic, then the particles will just clump up together and that does nothing for you for actually increasing the density of gas molecules throughout the entire liquid. These materials sound incredible. You mentioned zeolites there. Bearing in mind that we have lots of non-chemist listeners, could you just tell me a little bit more about those materials and how challenging it is to make them? Yeah, zeolites are materials that have been around for quite some time, originally discovered actually all the way back in the 1800s. Um, many zeolites are naturally occurring porous minerals. They're extremely important commercial class of materials. One of the things we were excited about about certain types of zeolites is that it had been known that they have can have very hydrophobic surfaces. And so what we realized is we could leverage that to create um, these zeolite nanoparticles that have very hydrophobic internal pores where we anticipated water would not be able to go inside, but gas molecules would. Uh, and because of their high surface areas, we thought we would be able to get really high densities of gases inside water, much higher than had been possible with other approaches. So if we go back to our initial challenge that you were trying to get a solution to, how do your porous liquids compare in their oxygen density to, say, hemoglobin or even just like pure oxygen? Yeah, so we're able to get densities now that are about an order of magnitude um, than the density of oxygen that's present in blood. We're also able to get about two or three times higher density than pure oxygen. I'm sure a lot of people are probably going to be a bit confused by that. It seems a bit paradoxical. Indeed, it does seem paradoxical. And that's one of the really powerful things about microporous materials more broadly, um, including zeolites and metal organic frameworks, that when you have these very high internal surface areas, so surface areas approaching that of a football field in a very tiny volume, what that allows you to do is to pack gas molecules really closely together. So if you think about our football field analogy, you can imagine that if the football field kind of has a little bit of a stickiness for a gas molecule. So when gas molecules get close to the surface, they stick to the surface to some degree. This is what's known as adsorption. And the density of gas molecules at the surface or at our football field is much higher than the density of gas molecules in the gas phase above the football field. And so now you can kind of imagine crinkling up and rolling up your football field to uh, really tiny dimensions to form these, these nano-sized porous objects. And you have all those kind of sticky gas surface interactions in a very small volume. Uh, and that's what's allowing you to pack gas molecules really, really tightly together and get to these much higher gas densities. So in terms of these porous liquids working in a biomedical setting, I can imagine that one thing that they need to be able to do in the way that hemoglobin can do near a cell is to let go of the oxygen at the right time in the right place. 
Yeah, certainly. There's a few things that yeah, these need to do in order to actually be able to be translated into something that's a viable biomedical technology. One, as you mentioned, is to be able to release oxygen, and that actually happens very quickly and effectively in our materials. So the sticky interactions between oxygen molecules and the pore surfaces are actually very weak, much more weakly than oxygen binds to hemoglobin. And so as soon as you get to a place where there is less oxygen than is present inside of our porous liquid, Liquid, oxygen will be quickly released until you re-equilibrate, and this happens in all of our experiments very quickly. Beyond gas release, though, of course, for any biological application, biocompatibility is really important. And so you need to design materials you know, that will not trigger unwanted immune responses or anything like that, and, um, and, and that's something we're very interested in pursuing going forward. But this initial work really focused on just establishing uh, design principles and demonstrating that it is possible to make aqueous fluids that can transport such a high density of gas molecules. That was Jared Mason from Harvard University in the US. To find out more about this work, check out the link to the paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about a new paper looking at some ancient bones to try and pin down when hominins may have started walking. Right now, though, Dan Fox is here with the research highlights. Stretchable electronic nerves that can sense muscle strain have allowed paralysed mice to walk, run and kick. Some spinal cord injuries and neural disorders can cause paralysis by preventing signals from the brain reaching muscles. Scientists have developed electronic devices that can restore this communication, but these devices are often rigid, consume a lot of energy and don't provide feedback on muscle movement and tautness. That feedback is important for producing smooth motion and preventing strained muscles. Now, researchers have attempted to address these problems by developing stretchable, low-energy nerves with strain sensors. The team anaesthetized mice to simulate the effects of a spinal cord injury or motor neuron disease and ran their electronic nerves from a transistor outside the body to an implant in the rodent's hind legs, allowing the mice to generate walking and kicking motions without overstretching the muscle. Read that research in full in Nature Biomedical Engineering. Researchers have spotted what could be the first planetary system to be discovered around a star destined to end its existence in a supernova explosion. There are over 5,000 known planets beyond the solar system, but most of them orbit relatively lightweight stars, no more than roughly twice the mass of the Sun. Whether planets can form and survive around stars big enough to go supernova remains relatively unexplored. A team of researchers have been using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope to search for planets around 85 massive stars. One of these stars is Mu2 Scorpii, a star 474 light-years away from us and about nine times the mass of the Sun. Nearby, the astronomers spotted a planet, roughly 14 times bigger than Jupiter, along with hints of a second, even larger object closer to the star than the first one. 
The presence of two planets around such a massive star suggests that large stars circled by large planets could be more common than expected. Read that research before Mewtwo Scorpii explodes in astronomy and astrophysics. Bipedalism, or walking about on two legs, is one of humanity's defining characteristics. But like so many of the things that make us, us, exactly when this mode of getting about evolved is unknown. This week in Nature, there's a paper building on some earlier work suggesting that it may have been several million years ago in what is perhaps one of the most ancient hominins yet discovered. But as is often the case with paleoanthropology, things are quite complicated. So to find out more about the work, I'm joined on the phone by Ewan Calloway, a senior reporter here at Nature, who's been reporting on the story. Ewan, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, doing okay. Thanks for joining me today. Now, this story actually begins about 20 years ago with the discovery of some bones that were found in Chad, right? Yeah, this is surrounding a species, I'll use that term instead of hominin, and I'll explain why a bit later, called Sahelanthropus chadensis. It was discovered as a result of an expedition from French and Chadian researchers in the early 2000s. And uh, in 2001, I think they found a fairly complete but really battered skull that was very swiftly described in nature. Um, and this skull, it's about 7 million years old. They nicknamed it Tumai, which means hope of life in the local Daza language. And the researchers argued that it was, based on its shape, a hominin. And so for those of us who aren't up on our paleo lingo, a hominin includes humans and all fossil species that are closer to the human lineage than the chimp lineage. So, you know, six to 10 million years ago, the ancestors of humans and chimps split and everything on the human line is a hominin. Everything, the other lines is, is not. And so that was their argument. They also argued on the basis of this skull that where the spine entered the skull, it was at an angle such that that was indicative of bipedalism. So that was their argument. The seven million year old thing is a hominin based on the shape of its skull, and it walked upright. And that would have made it the earliest known hominin yet discovered. So that was the paper from 20 years ago then. But let's fast forward to now. And there's a new paper out, which is looking at some different bones. Yeah, so they were uncovering these remains. I think when you see a skull, you know, a hominin skull or even a large primate skull, let's say, it's pretty darn clear. But then, you know, you're, you're tromping around the desert and, you know, you're picking up lots of other bones that might be from different animals, etc. And, you know, it's all collected. So in 2001, I think around the same time that Tumai, the skull was discovered, uh, some other remains were discovered and put in a box or something like that, just kind of there for storage. And a few years later, some researchers not affiliated with this team, but at the same university, they were just kind of looking through these bones as part of, it was like a training exercise for a student. And this student identified one of the bones as a primate femur or, you know, a part of a primate femur. It's just the shaft, so it doesn't have either ends attached to it. And other researchers, I think part of this team, identified an ulna, which is an arm bone. And then a couple of years later, this expedition, these researchers in Chad uh, found another arm bone. And so this paper that we're talking about is describing this femur shaft 
and these two arm bones that were found between 2001 and 2003, but they have not been properly or fully described until now, you know, 20 some years later, which has led to quite a lot of speculation and intrigue and controversy. Uh, surrounding these remains, to be honest. And, and what sort of intrigue are we talking about then, Ewan? Well, the femur in particular has gotten a lot of attention because, you know, a femur, even one that's not fully complete, might say a lot more about bipedalism. And so the researchers who uncovered the femur and got to look at it for, I think it was just, a, you know, a few days in 2004 or something like that, they published a paper in 2020, finally, saying based on their brief analysis, it does not look like an upright walking hominin. You know, and two years later, this paper comes out, which is a much more careful analysis from the French Chad team. And they say, you know, it does. And so that's kind of where it stands. I mean, there are these arm bones as well, which look really quite ape-like and similar to, you know, what we think early hominins had. Possibly they were quite adept at tree climbing. And this was a trait that was retained in the hominin lineage for quite some time, all the way until a few million years ago with Lucy. You know, maybe the last time we were talking about her, this is Australopithecus afarensis. It's a really famous fossil. You know, we think she might have met her end falling out of a tree. So, you know, it's this kind of mix of traits behind this really controversial fossil. And so there are some differences of opinion there, clearly. What are other people you spoke to saying about it? I've gotten a diversity of opinions. I think some people who say, you know, yeah, this is probably a hominin, probably bipedal. But, you know, we've got some other candidates, maybe a little bit younger than Sahelanthropus, that are probably a little bit closer to, you know, the lineage that led to our kind. And figure out the relationship between these early hominins is not really helped by this paper. I've got some people who, you know, are really critical of the evidence that the researchers put forward in favor of bipedalism. So it really spans the gamut. There's a News and Views author. I didn't speak with him, but I've read his really excellent essay. His name is Dan Lieberman. He's a paleoanthropologist at Harvard. You know, he said, you know, the Silanthropus femur doesn't have a smoking gun traces of bipedalism, but it looks more like that of a bipedal hominin than that of a quadrupedal ape. And so on the balance of evidence, you know, he's saying that this looks like a biped, but maybe not, you know. A lot of people aren't going to be convinced, and I don't think this paper is going to change a lot of people's opinions. And what do you think it will take, then, to put this disagreement to bed? I mean, maybe more discoveries from the species. Certainly, that would be helpful. I think that's what it would take. I mean, now that the bones have been described, they're out there for other people to hopefully analyze. I mean, there are some people I spoke with suggest to me that just because this thing potentially walked on two feet, that doesn't make it hominin. I mean, we really don't know what the common ancestor of humans and chimps looked like and how it walked. And we don't really know when bipedality developed on our lineage. So there are just a lot of questions. And so I think finding additional fossils, not only from on the hominin lineage, but also on the chimpanzee lineage, could be really illuminating about what great apes looked like in this period, you know, 10 to 5 or 6 million years ago. Um, We know, was there a lot of diversity or is it clear that, you know, this one's in the chimp box and this one's in the hominin box? We, We just don't know. And finally then, I mean, why is it important to know when hominins started walking? Why do we need an answer to that question? I mean, as you said in the intro, this is one of the defining traits of our lineage. I mean, I wouldn't even call it just curiosity, but it's just interesting, isn't it? Nature's Ewan Calloway there. Head over to the show notes to find a link to his news article and to the paper.
Finally, on the show, it's time for the briefing chat where we discuss some of the stories that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. So, Ben, what have you found for us this week? Well, Shelmany, I've got a story that was reported on in The Guardian, and it's based on a paper in Science Advances, and it's all about Megalodon, the extinct giant shark that lived millions of years ago and one of the biggest predatory fish of all time. You know how I love extinct things, especially giant, scary, extinct things. This is a type of creature we've known about for a while, though, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, say, Megalodon is is obviously, it's kind of the poster shark for giant, huge, extinct creatures, right? But we don't know a huge amount about it. Like, you can get a lot of teeth, right? They're about the size of your fist, right? But in terms of what the actual animal itself looked like is a bit more of a mystery, because, of course, its skeleton was mostly made of cartilage, right? So it didn't preserve well. Yeah, so it's been hard to kind of work out what this animal looks like. Like, you think about dinosaurs, right? Their bones preserve pretty nicely, right? So you can sort of dig them up and then reconstruct what the animal would have looked like. But that's not necessarily the case here. So in the past, scientists have had to make sort of inferences from the teeth and comparing it to things like great white sharks as well, which are obviously an apex predator from today, and try and work out what the animal might have looked like, right? And I think estimates say it would have been about 20 metres long, something like that. But now some researchers have come about it a slightly different way and are having another go to see what a megalodon might have looked like. Okay, so beyond just, hey, these teeth are sort of like great whites, but even bigger, therefore megalodon must have been even bigger. What other evidence is there out there about the body shape of this creature? Well, body parts are vanishingly rare, as I say, Shamini, but not completely absent, right? So, for example, in a Belgian museum, there is these portions of vertebrae from the megalodon right and they've been there since the 1860s right and so what these researchers have done is use these to make a 3d model of what this animal might have looked like and so looking at them it suggested that this animal died at 46 years old right and lived about 18 million years ago and so what they've done is they've taken these partial vertebrae extended it out to imagine what all the vertebrae would look like put in a bunch of teeth which obviously you know a ten a penny relatively speaking (laughs) um and and kind of thrown in a little bit of uh, a great white morphology as well right into the mix to try and flesh out the bones so to speak and then made a computer model of what this animal might have been like and now that they've got a sort of 3d model of this particular individual what does it tell us well what this allows them to do shaman is trying to work out the biological properties of this individual animal and so this 3D reconstruction, they suggest that the animal was about 16 metres long, which is longer than a bus, which also puts it within the kind of estimate for how long scientists thought megalodons might grow. They suggest it was probably 61 tonnes, which is very, very heavy indeed, <laughs> and that its mouth span would have been about two metres across right so that's about as tall as me right so i could have just gone in without crouching down into its mouth had i lived 18 million years ago and they suggest that maybe this individual had a cruising swimming speed that was actually higher than sharks that are alive today and all these facts are super interesting of course but i think what they're inferring as well is maybe it gives a bit more of an insight into the megalodon's lifestyle they say that it needed a huge amount of calories and its mouth was so big it could really kind of devour Giant other predators, for example, something the size of a modern-day killer whale, it could just gobble it down in a few bites, right? And they suggest that this animal could have been quite good at really long-distance migrations and doing it quite quickly, which would increase the chance it would have of coming across things to eat, because it really needs to get these calories on board. Oh, this, this it sounds like a terrifying but awesome mega-predator. I guess I suppose I'm, I'm glad 
megalodons aren't around anymore. Yeah, and what happened to them, I guess, is one of the big sort of unanswered questions. And the reason for their extinction is, well, it's unknown. Maybe they were outcompeted by smaller, more mobile sharks. Maybe it was habitat loss. But I think this work is interesting because, of course, it is a lot of extrapolation as well. There's still some great white data in there. And as we've covered on the podcast before, there's some evidence about what megalodons ate, right, from looking at the chemistry of their teeth. Suggestions that they like to eat top predators, for example, and so maybe their extinction altered the food web and allowed, you know, whale species to thrive when they would previously be predated. I mean, there's a bunch of questions about this animal, and I guess we'll never really get to the bottom of them. But this work kind of gives a little bit of a new flavor about what life might have been like for this 46-year-old megalodon 18 million years ago. And next time someone wants to make one of those terrifying giant shark horror movies, they got some more scientific basis for it. Yeah, that's what those movies are missing, Shamley, definitely. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. What's your story today? So I've been reading a news article in Nature about a new paper out in Science about a class of chemicals that are sort of nicknamed forever chemicals. Yes, I've heard about these things. They're often found in like cooking pans and stuff like that, right? Yes, a lot of these chemicals are sort of oil repellent, water repellents used in things like, yeah, like nonstick coating, waterproofing, firefighting foam, things like that. And the fact that they don't break down easily is like a great property in some situations, but it's starting to have potentially environmental and health impacts. But this new paper shows a possible new way to neutralise some of the dangers of these chemicals. Right. And what are some of these potential dangers then? Yes. So these are substances, these forever chemicals are actually per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, um, or PFASs or PFASs. And they are basically sort of carbon chains with a very strong carbon-fluorine bond and as well as being very useful for, for all sorts of things, they're also hard to get rid of. So if these products are going into sort of waste disposal, these chemicals are not easily dealt with. They tend to accumulate in the soil, in the water, even in humans, actually. So a 2015 study found these PFASs in the blood of 97% of Americans, and they may be linked to medical conditions such as thyroid disease, high cholesterol, cancer, potentially. And so, yeah, there's a drive then to try and clean them up. Which, unfortunately, at the moment has been very difficult. So you can treat them to basically break them down so they can be disposed of properly. But so far, the processes needed were requiring very high pressures, temperatures above 1000 degrees Celsius, and just generally very expensive, which is where this new research comes in and hopefully has actually come across a cheaper and more practical solution. And what is that solution then? Well, there's some chemistry involved. And as I mentioned, these chemicals have a very strong carbon-fluorine bond. And actually what this new chemical process does is avoid targeting the really strong bond and go to another part of the chemical, knocking off a sort of another section of it that starts a cascade reaction that result in this big, long chemical being broken down into then harmless products. So this was sort of discovered by a group of scientists who sort of realised that it worked and then computational analysis to kind of work out actually what was going on with the, with the chemistry there, how it was actually working, which is super useful because if they can work out what exactly is going on with the method that they found, they might be able to develop methods that work for this whole 
whole class of of chemicals not just the the ones that they were working on ah so they're testing a subset of these chemicals then and want to extrapolate it out but are there any downsides i guess to this new technique well some of the same downsides still apply which is that it can be quite hard to kind of isolate the the chemicals from things like groundwater and from waste to actually treat it and this chemical process involves another chemical called dmso as as part of the reaction but that might not be terribly practical you can't put it down a sewer you then have to dispose of that chemical as well so this isn't the single perfect solution for all treatment but the better understanding in general could lead to that kind of a solution well the problem that is looking for a solution then Charmaine, and we should watch this space as they say but let's leave it there for today's briefing chat and listeners if you'd like to know more about either of these stories head over to the show notes where you'll find links to them and also a link to where you can sign up for the nature briefing to have even more stories from the wide world of science delivered direct to your inbox that's all for this week. As always, you can keep up with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast, or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.